A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Book Nook, where the Lorehounds, your guides to the archipelago of Earthsea. I'm David. I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is part one of our coverage of the third book of the Earthsea series, The Farthest Shore, by Ursula K. Le Guin. We've decided to break up the book into multiple podcasts, so this episode will just cover the first five chapters of the book. We'll keep everybody posted on how we plan to cover the rest of the book. For this episode, we'll start off with some spoiler-free conversation about our thoughts on the book in general. And then we'll take a short break so folks who don't want to be spoiled can safely jump out. After that, we will move into a deeper discussion about major themes presented as well as discussing the main plot points. Well, we enjoy discussing the book amongst ourselves. We also want to hear from you. Um, you can join the conversation in several ways. You could send us an email to book at thelorehounds.com. You could visit us at our website, thelorehounds.com slash contact. And there, there's a contact form or this really nifty voicemail feature you could use. And lastly, you could join us on our Discord server. We have a really fun and welcoming community and dedicated channel for Earthsea Conversations. And there's a link in the show notes below. Stick around to the end of the podcast for updates on our remaining June and early July schedule, as well as for updates about our Patreon and our 100 subscriber membership drive. We're turning one year old in July, and we'd love to invite you to become a subscriber. Okay, uh, now that all that fun stuff is out of the way, let's get into our Earthsea conversation. Uh, this is our third book. Um, we, If you have not uh, checked out the, the first two, you can go back into our feed and, or go to our website and find those there. Um, what, uh, John, can you talk a little bit about the entire series quickly, just for folks who may not know the, the run of books that we've got available? Sure. So we did two podcasts on the first book, A Wizard of Earthsea. We did one podcast on the second book, The Tombs of Atuan. This is going to be at least two podcasts. We'll see how it goes. Uh, on the third book, The Farthest Shore, there is a fourth major book. And then there are two other, I'm not even sure exactly what they are. You two know more than me. But there's two other entries to the series after that that uh, we likely will cover. We're not, I think we're not fully committed yet, but we're basically committed. Uh, we just, we just can't, we just can't confirm the deal for everybody yet. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so there's a total of six entries. This is going to be the fourth podcast on the series. And that is too many numbers. Just keep reading. <laughs> <laughs> and listening. 
Um, cool. Yeah, it's yeah. The last two, I'm not sure. Marilyn, what with Tales of Ursi and the Other Wind, the Other Wind is a collection of short stories. No, it's the other, other way, way around. around. Okay, right. Tales of Ursi is what it says. It's a collection of uh, short stories and some are almost novella length that talk about the founding of the island of Roke. There's a lovely story about Ogian and the earthquake. Um, and then there's a very important short story, which serves as a link between Tahanu and the other wind, which is a full novel and the completion of the cycle. Okay. So it's it, the other wind is a pretty, it sounds like it's an important thing. And then tales of earth. See, like I know within the star Wars canon, we have, uh, visions, which are non-canonical stories, but they're fr told from different points of views and different little interesting things. Or, or I think with the Expanse novels, there were all mm -hmm. these little novellas about how they discovered faster or not, or how they discovered fusion drives or, you know, certain key points that happened mm -hmm. in certain characters' backstories. Um, so yeah, so they're nice. Sounds like it's nice contextual information, but not critical for the, the main storyline. It is, except for the one, as I said, there is right. one story which is really critical for that. We've been talking a lot about how magic developed and how Roke developed and why the gender split. And there is one uh, fairly lengthy tale that does go into that and, and explains an awful lot of how that happened. Sounds like we're going to get stuck reading those. Oh, shucks. Oh, shucks darn. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, listeners. Keep that feedback coming. I've already I think heard from we, several of you that they're definitely wanting to hear it. So Right. I remember when we were kicking around this idea, too. Like, oh, it's just three books. We'll just <laughs> knock it out. I know it won't be a problem. Three podcasts. Well, it'll be fun for the summer. <laughs> this has become a much bigger project. And there's a, a book that is going to be coming out and I, by another author, and I'm blanking on the name of the author really quick, but uh, it's about Ursula K. Le Guin and Ursi and, and it's sort of this academic but also personal engagement, and I'm hoping to reach out to that author and see if we'd love to have a conversation with, with them as well. So That would yeah, be terrific. Yeah, it would be very cool. So we'll we'll see what happens. But not to mention the people are demanding we get Marilyn to read the Wheel of Time. <laughs> demanding people meeting one. <laughs> I we got one piece of feedback that said please get Marilyn to read the Wheel of Time. So seriously, we'll see. We did. We did. We did. Uh, I feel like it went into oh, in one of our podcasts, now. but we'll see. We'll see. It you wasn't me. It wasn't me writing in with a hat on. Okay. You, <laughs> I, I, wearing I trust a beard. you on that, John. <laughs> he was wearing a beard. I saw him. Oh, well, and a mustache from the look of it, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, John, you had some trepidations about, uh, because the first book is such a homage to Tolkien. It's or? it's a ripoff, right? I mean, like, he basically, right. I think Robert Jordan wanted to recreate The Lord of the Rings so that he could write a full, like, almost sequel series. And, no, I, and he I did, I and it was great. It's just that the first book is just so... Tolkien-esque, yeah. I and, think the, I, and after that, it really branches off. Yeah, I think I tried to read it once at the request of a student or two, and I just couldn't bring myself to do it, so. If you can get through book one, I think you'll like it, Marilyn. That's, that's my recommendation to you. Well, I guess my question would be, do I have to read book one, or is there a nice yes, synopsis in book two? it's very important. Okay. It's very important. I will take it under advice. <laughs> <laughs> Those thousand pages are very important. <laughs> 
Well, let's start talking about the farthest shore, uh, mm-hmm. not the furthest shore. I remember, John, we were talking during our planning meetings, and you were like, wait, I think it's the farthest shore, not the furthest shore. And you, of course, were right. Um, I'm always farthest, right. That's the, how it works. <laughs> that's right. Uh, the farthest shore. Um, let's talk about our general non-spoiler feelings, thoughts, ideas, comments about this. Um, John, do you want to start us off? Because now we should uh, reestablish uh, our relative um, uh, relationship with this series of books. I read these books a number of times uh, in my youth and early adulthood. And in many ways, these books are more meaningful to me than Tolkien was. I think for the the electricity that people feel when they read Tolkien for the first time, that's what I felt when I read these for the first time. And they've they've been very strongly with me um, for you know ever since then. Um, but I haven't read them in a long time, so it's it's great coming back to them as a, a much older adult. Marilyn, what's your experience with uh, the whole Earthsea collection? Well, I read them when I was a little younger than Aaron, um, roughly between the ages of 12 and, and 15 or so. And I remember liking aspects of them tremendously. And then other aspects um, kind of frightened me at the time. I had a very, um, I had a very strong need for clarity and things like good and evil and, and, you know, mm-hmm. right will out. And I had read Tolkien first and so I very much resonated with that worldview and recognized that Ursula Le Guin was coming from a very different perspective. Right, right. And so in many respects, I've enjoyed them much more now as an adult mm-hmm. than I did when I was reading them in my teens. And I always respected her as an author because she was such a good writer, as we've talked about before, and knew that she was saying something different and wanted to understand it as much as I could. But also found some of it tough going. I, people, listeners who are on the, the um, Discord channel will know that I've posted reading, uh, warnings about some of the content that could be difficult for people to read um, just because I felt it was important. Yeah. But it's still worth reading. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you can. And how much and did you taught you, uh, these books, uh, Le Guin in general, when you were at Colby? I taught a course on women in myth and fairy tale. Right. And there were sort of sequential, starting with stories that were written by men, stories that were written by women about women and so forth. So we read the tombs of Atuan, um, which was a puzzlement to some of the more feminist students because it's not in any way, obviously a feminist right. book. Right. And then when we read Tahanu. Everybody said, oh, that's why we read this first. (laughs) And it is a much different book with a much different flavor because 20 years had passed since she had last visited Earthsea and she had changed a lot as a result of her participation in the women's movement and realized that she really wanted to go back to Earthsea and, and, you know. Re-examine. Make Earthsea great again. You know, that's what she really wanted to do. I'm trying to remember the story uh, that um, uh, she said in in a talk, which I hope we can weasel parts of in at some point, um, revisioning Earthsea, that Vonda McIntyre had said she was doing penance. And she said, irredeemably secular, I think it was affirmative action, 
or something like that um, to bring Earthsea into a place where she felt more comfortable in terms of how gender was being represented. Mm -hmm. And also just answering a lot of the questions, you know, why is women's magic supposedly weak and wicked? And what did happen to get after the end of the book that we're not going to spoil right now? And uh, I don't even know because I know things like that. I haven't got there yet. yet That's right. I was told not to. That's right. (laughs) Yeah. There's even not to. Well, there's even a, I guess I told myself not to. uh, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. There were a couple of comments uh, in this, uh, in, in one of these chapters here at the beginning that really raised an eyebrow for me about, um, uh, attitudes about women's magic yeah. uh, expressed mm-hmm. by masters of rogue. Mm-hmm. Anyway, John, uh, you're fresh and green to uh, fresh, fresh. Um, so this is your first time reading this book, uh, and first time with Ursula Le Guin. I think in general, what are your thoughts and feelings uh, of these first five chapters so far? I'm fresher than Link's body spray, as they say in Ted Lasso. Um, <laughs> So I I like this book more than I did the other two already. And I'm uh-huh. only five chapters in because we, that's where we decided to stop tonight. I was like, let me just pause there, see if I can give an honest take from where I'm at right now. Because you're a notoriously and voracious reader. You, you I, are a monster. I do, I do verace. That's not yes. a real word, but I'm, <laughs> no. I'm just, <laughs> it sounds good, though. It does, right? Uh, yeah, no, I, I, this year I've been reading less because I've been sort of on an anime binge. <laughs> but um, yeah, I generally I, I do a lot of reading. Last year I read like 70 some of the books. I, I, I read mostly science fiction and fantasy. Um, you know, I, I recently have not done a lot of nonfiction reading, uh, mostly because. It's nice to relax with a fantasy book. And also, I I think fantasy is something that, because of its nature as speculative fiction, allows us to shed some of our preconceptions and get to the human truths a little quicker. Mm, you know, absolutely. not that you can't get a human truth out of a more quote unquote realistic fiction book, but I think that the fantastical nature of fantasy really lets you, as a grown up, let go of the things that you know basically say well anything's possible in this world so maybe character growth is too and i think that this book series has done a fascinating thing which is and i I don't think this is a big spoiler it's it's that it it's allowed us to follow the original main character through his life Mm -hmm. and to see the different stages of growth and to see something that that i think is not talked about enough which is the flaws you have in childhood are still there with you as an old man, mm. right? Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and you don't you you aren't just a completely different person just because you've aged. And perhaps the best thing we can do is become aware of those flaws within ourselves mm-hmm. rather than try to cover them up or pretend they don't exist. Yes, right. That's and, basically the message of the very first book, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. But I think it it really comes to fruition in this book. Yes, it uh, does. even even in the first five chapters, I would also say the density of the amount of quality quotes was higher <laughs> in these Way first higher, yeah. five chapters than in yeah. the previous two books. Especially yeah. the first book is very dry. I would say the language, you know, it's mostly laundry lists of uh, name, you know, proper nouns. I think there's a little bit too much of that at the beginning of the first book. And then there's world building, but it's really told in a very 
almost straightforward, factual manner instead of something that feels more fantastical to me. Interesting. This felt like Mm. a fantasy adventure to me. This felt much more in line with what I understand fantasy novels to be. Hmm. And maybe, maybe that's less unique. And maybe that, that for some people that will make them like it less, but it made me like it more so far. The, my, one of the notes that I wrote for myself is that it was how confident the writing seems in this mm-hmm. third book because she's written other books by now. And I think one of her other major books, the left hand of darkness mm-hmm. uh, has had already been written by the time she wrote this. If yes. I am correct. It had been written and it had won both the Hugo Award and the Nebula Award, and that was the first time anybody had accomplished that. No wow. small feat. <laughs> no small feat. And so, I, I, yeah, I go think ahead. one of the things that um, that speculative fiction does, fantasy, science fiction, whatever, but especially fantasy, it allows the author to write about truths that are real, if not factual, mm-hmm. and allows authors to write about things that really can't be expressed in a strictly factual, right. quote unquote, real life right. type of, of a novel. And some people are comfortable with that. Some people hunger for that. And some people just don't want that. Right. You know, it's funny. We talk about the influence of feminism on Le Guin over time. Mm-hmm. It's part of the thing that I see in the way that fantasy literature has sort of been been second fiddle to academics <laughs> you know they uh, other than other than ancient fantasy literature i know michael livingston talks about this all the time which is yes. if it's ancient it's allowed to be fantasy if it's modern it's not academic if it's fantasy mm-hmm. but that aside i think part of it is fantasy is much more focused on the emotional truths than it is yes. about factual, real-life, you know, logical truths. And there is also the preconception that emotional truths are a feminine aspect of society. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so there is this sort of subtle sexism happening there as well. Yeah. The subtle subordination of, of fantasy literature because it is second fiddle in the patriarchal structure. And that is something that I think is changing as fantasy becomes a lot more mainstream, as adults are willing to say, I'm a huge fantasy fan. Uh, and even, you know, Game of Thrones, which has its misogyny, I did do a lot of breakthrough <laughs> for uh, for people coming out and saying, I love this stuff. I love dragons and I love I love w- watching this, you know, medieval drama. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that Le Guin reflecting on that on the influence of patriarchy on her work is also something that we can do here where mm-hmm. we reflect on sort of the journey of fantasy literature literature as a whole with Le Guin's book. Yeah, fantasy literature is rooted in folk tales and fairy tales which of course I think it is. Then again, you see that not so subtle gendering because they're usually called what? Old wives tales. <laughs> right. <laughs> and right. who tells the the tales to the children, the mothers and the older sisters. Mm-hmm. And so there again, storytelling is deemed somewhat lesser. It's entertaining. Wasn't always this way, of course. I mean, the, right. the honor that was given to bards and skulls and sculpts in a variety of, of different cultures was very high. And they were storytellers. Now they wove a lot of history in with their story or what they thought of as history. 
but still, by the time we get to you know the 17th century, um, that all is pretty much gone by the wayside, and it's it's the women who are continuing to tell the stories. You would really like this character in The Wheel of Time, Marilyn. I'm going to pitch it to you again, who is a bard who is very into the importance of storytelling in conveying truths and in teaching, you know, and uh, okay. I I, th- I think you would like him because he's exactly what you're saying here. You know, the value of remembering stories, telling stories, sharing stories, uh, and in a way that conveys their emotional impact. Well, I trust your judgment. I have yet to have been misled, so <laughs> I will definitely put it under advisement. You heard it here, folks. Marilyn has agreed to read The Wheel of Time. What were I you did not idea? say that. I did not say that. I said I would continue to consider it. So the upshot on your take on this book is that, is there any, uh, uh, you have a higher enjoyment factor? I would say this so. Book? Okay. I'm enjoying this more than I did the first two books. Got it. Um, and and I'm glad that I stuck with it. I don't know if I would have stuck with it past the Wizard of Earthsea if we weren't podcasting about it. Because mm-hmm. I, I liked mm-hmm. the Wizard of Earthsea, but it was really – it was sort of like watching the blueprints of the things I love, you know, because mm-hmm. it's so – Right, right, right. It's so almost rudimentary. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. foundational, but because of that, it's it's rudimentary. Right. Uh, well, and consider the time period. Right the, o- right. the only fantasy we'd had at that point was Tolkien. Right. In right. terms of "quote unquote" modern, so sure. yeah, she was a blueprint. She was inventing the blueprint. Exactly. Yeah, and so I always respected her, and I respected the work. But I don't know if I would have continued with it after that if we weren't podcasting. But sure. I'm glad that I pushed through because now here I am. I think that she's refined her style. I think that she's laying down deeper blueprints and deeper roots. And mm-hmm. now I'm here for the journey a little more. I like I, I like how Gandalf is finally here in full. <laughs> I can't wait till you get to Tanu. I just can't wait till you get to Tanu. <laughs> Marilyn, what's your um, take on this book? Uh, are you enjoying it differently than the the first two? What does it? Uh, how does this novel speak to you in, in differently than the than the other two? Where are you at? What's your temperature or, or vibe with this? Well, as I say, I'm definitely enjoying it more now than I did when I first encountered it. It is adding dimensionality to mm-hmm. a lot of the familiar things. I mean, I, I love seeing more of the inner workings of Roke and just the beginnings of the disturbances that we might see later on mm-hmm. um, as things change, as they inevitably do. Um, the relationship between Aaron and Ged is really interesting to follow and and hard it's still Mm -hmm. hard i mean even knowing the outcome there are points when you just go oh oh oh." right um but that means you're committed to the characters or i'm committed to the characters right because you're having an emotional reaction (laughs) exactly exactly and it's um it's heartbreaking and also um deeply engaging right I had uh, a, a strange thought while I was thinking about how I was feeling about this. Um, certainly, this book starts out with a lot more kinetic energy. You're, you're right away. You're into it. It's a mystery, and mm. uh, it's a mystery story, and, uh, and I like how Le Guin is starting to pay off 
set up and pay off right away certain parts of the mystery and how um, it just feels like a well-constructed mystery novel. Not that mm-hmm. I'm a big reader of that genre. Sherlock Gedd, we get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but then while I was thinking that thought, I was kind of, wait a minute, this is a buddy cop uh, <laughs> episode, <laughs> right? This is you Men know? in Black. Basically, you've got the 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 old mentor and the and the young upstart, and they're, you know they're working it out. And uh, it, it it was kind of funny for me to have that thought. But I'm like I said when what you you know to pick up what you where you were at, John, with the confidence of her writing, it's so good. And when she starts to lay out the pathways for the mystery, and then starts dropping clues really early on. Yeah, and they're right there. Uh, and five chapters in, the shape of the mystery, the principal uh, bad guy or whatever, the, the 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 antagonist, as it were, we there's so much that we know already, but then we don't know it because her writing is so subtle and and buried. Um, it, it's it's been a joy to read uh, this story because I feel like I am reading a story, not some huge cathartic emotional response release or coming from a subterranean world and you know out into the world all of these coming of age stuff that yeah this is still coming of age but something oh, yes. about something about the construction of the story uh is f- fresher and more expansive and and there's more world engagement here not just world building but engagement we we interact with the world in a lot different ways. And, um, the last thought I had was uh, as an older man myself, you know, when I was younger and I read these, you know, obviously you, uh, I was identifying with the young protagonists in the stories, but particularly with this book, you know, I can now see Ged's point of view a little bit <laughs> in a way that I couldn't before. Uh, uh, but I can also still feel Aaron's, you know, uh, uh, fire for life and you know this the the development that he's coming through i can still hear that in my head uh from when i was young like that so yeah it's uh i'm definitely coming to this book with fresh perspectives having aged and and lived my life up to this point as well so well I'll take your word for it that it's a buddy cop i know almost nothing about the genre except that it is a thing to me i see merlin and and uh, arthur sure there, mm, yeah, yeah that works or Shrek and Arthur, if you're into that version. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it's a two two um, two characters trying to solve a mystery, and they're not necessarily right. Um, uh, they didn't pick each other. Circumstance, life brought them together, and one of them might be getting too old for this. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. So well, it's yeah, two circumstance brought the one in, but I do feel as though the other one picked that one. Hmm. Um. Against the advice of of a lot of people, right? But they wouldn't have come together, weren't it not for the global, the the much larger circumstance? That, sure, yeah. sure, sure. And then they have to. Then part of the buddy cop trope is is that they have to negotiate out their relationship. They're right. thrust into the situation. Yeah. yeah, and then especially when you when they have very different personalities or predilections, mm-hmm. things like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously, we have one here who there's a huge power differential to start with. But then, you know, the, the idolization of one by the other and, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. there's a lot of stuff that 
Because I don't think Sparrowhawk uh, is very comfortable in some ways. Like, ah, get this kid off me a little bit. You know, he's, you know, chill out, man. You know? Well, you know, you talk about the power imbalance. It's true. I mean, on the face of it. On the face of it. An Archmage at the height of his powers is going to be more powerful than a young prince who's just beginning to come into maturity. This reading around for the first time, I'm really also seeing the reverse in Mm -hmm. terms of class. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because um, I kind of learned this from my father, who was the child of immigrants. Ged is still a goat herd at heart. Yeah. We know that's how he started. <laughs> it's true. And we saw some of that distinction in the first book, where he's uh, his primary antagonist while at school is an upper class privileged mage who never makes, uh, oh, sorry, he's a sorcerer. He never makes full majory. Um who goads Ged into doing the horrible thing that he does, and then right. spends the rest of the book taking care of. I think in these exchanges back and forth, I'm I'm seeing some hint of the fact that Ged still feels like a goat herd. Yeah. He's never not going to still feel like a goat herd, even with all this power and influence and so forth. Um, it was his foundation. It was what he was growing up. It was how other people saw him and referred to him. And so even given the incredible things he can do, there is still this sense of, yeah, well, I'm, I'm not a prince of the line of the finest line right. in, in all of Earthsea. Right. And there, I'm just never going to be that. Right. All right. Well, uh, anybody else have anything to add? Um, I think we could probably head into our, our break. And then after we come back from our break, John, um, you want to lead us through, I think you've got a little synopsis prepared, and then we can start to talk. How how do you want to take the back half of the conversation, John? Why don't you lead us through that, what the expectation is? Yeah, so after we do the plot synopsis, we're going to talk about major themes. There's not a lot of plot in the first five chapters, uh, but we are going to go full spoilers for those first five chapters. And then Marilyn and David are going to talk about their favorite themes from the book. And I am going to moderate because I don't know enough about the book yet to pull out as many themes, but I'll have more to contribute in the next podcast. See you after the break. And we're back. All right. Full spoilers, leave if you haven't read the book, but please come back after you've read the book. Here we go. Plot synopsis. A young man named Aaron, Prince of Enlad, travels to Roke to speak to the Archmage on behalf of his family. He meets the Archmage Sparrowhawk, who we know as Ged, and tells him of a failing of magic in his country. Ged embarks on a journey with Aaron on the Lookfar to find the source of the problem. Ged believes the problem to be coming from a dark wizard, which, according to Aaron, should not be possible. Arriving in Hort Town, Ged and Aaron disguise themselves as uncle and nephew and meet a struggling wizard named Hare, who is under the influence of the dark wizard. Aaron is attacked and captured by slavers, but Ged follows after him, rescuing Aaron and freeing the slaves before they can be sold. Back on the sea... Aaron has troubling dreams, and Ged reflects on the struggles of his youth and the battles fought on his way to Archmage. 
So now that we've gotten the plot established, why don't we move on to the themes and sort of analyze the plot through those lenses? Marilyn, would you like to introduce your first theme here? Sure. Um, the first theme, which seems to be throughout, is heroes and hero worship. Okay. And then I wanted to emphasize the fact that this book came out in 1970, which was when the Vietnam War was at its height in terms of citizens' protest, um, mm -hmm. fear and shame about the war. Um, and you see drug-addicted soldiers coming home. And it's such a, a noticeable contrast from the Second World War, which was the previous war that most people would remember. So there's that whole piece of it, you know, soldiers firmly being seen as heroes now suddenly being seen to be human beings and vulnerable um, in this really ghastly conflict. There were also the series of assassinations around this time, Martin mm -hmm. Luther King Jr., um, Bobby, Bobby Kennedy. Kennedy yep. Yeah, and some people will remember the 1968 song, Abraham, Martin, and John. Um, each of the first three verses of the song names one of these men, um, such as, anybody here see my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? He freed a lot of people, but it seems the good they die young. I just looked around and he's gone. And so each of them gets that treatment, and then there's a bridge, and then the fourth and final verse mentions Bobby, referring to Robert F. Kennedy, and ends with a description of him walking over a hill with the other three men. And that never struck me until this reading, but I'm suddenly seeing Ged and Aaron walking over the hill and down into, you know, this is, I guess this is spoiling of the spoiling, we're going, going into right. the future. <laughs> but we know eventually they're going to wind up in the dark realm, right? Um, of course. And that just, I, that resonated with me suddenly so sharply. And so people who were living during that time may may remember what I'm talking about, but I think it's important to to bring that to the foreground for people for whom that's kind of misty history. Um, but from the very earliest stages, the, the I love the line for Aaron had fallen in love. And they talk about how he'd been active and so forth, and life had been a game, and he played it and loved it. But now the depths of him were awakened, not by a game or a dream, but by honor, danger, wisdom, by a scarred mm. face and a quiet voice and a dark hand holding, careless of its power, the staff of you that bore near the grip in silver set in the black wood, the lost rune of the kings. So the first step out of childhood is made all at once, without looking before or behind, without caution, and nothing held in reserve. I love that she says that Aaron has fallen in love. Mm -hmm. You yeah. don't usually think of hero worship as falling in love, but I think it's ideal. Um, right. And later on, you know, so he's, he's very comfortable in his, his own hero who he is idolizing. Um, but later on, he realizes that his, he has this deep fear and uh, get asked him fear what? Tears sprang into the boy's eyes. To fail you, he said. Mm. And so he says, you know, sit down. I do not mistake you for a wizard or a warrior or any finished thing. What you are, I do not know. Though I'm glad to know that you can sail a boat. What you will be, no one knows. But this much I do know. You are the son of Morad and of Sariath. Aaron was silent. That is true, my lord, he said at last, but... 
But I am not mortared. I am only myself. You take no pride in your lineage? Yes, I take pride in it, because it makes me a prince. It is a responsibility, a thing that must be lived up to. The archmage nodded once sharply. That is what I mean. To deny the past is to deny the future. A man does not make his destiny. He accepts it or denies it. If the rowan's roots are shallow, it bears no crown. At this, Aaron looked up, startled, for his true name, Lebanon, meant the rowan tree. But the archmage had not said his name. Your roots are deep, he said. You have strength and you must have room, room to grow. Thus I offer you, instead of a safe trip home to Enlad, an unsafe voyage to an unknown end. You need not come. The choice is yours, but I offer you the choice, for I am tired of safe places and roofs and walls around me. He ended abruptly. <laughs> he ended abruptly looking about him with piercing, unseeing eyes. Aaron saw the rest, deep restlessness of the man, and it frightened him. Yet fear sharpens exhilaration, and it was with a leap of the heart that he answered, My lord, I choose to come with you. But later, we read, Aaron saying to himself, How is it I'm not going home? Why am I seeking something I don't understand with a man I don't know? And he had no answers to his questions. So here we see Aaron's major conflict and his major challenge. He's afraid to fail, but he has to learn that everybody fails at some point. And we'll see him fail and how he deals with it. But even more importantly, in some respects, he has to learn how to deal with what he perceives as the failure of the Lord to whom he swore allegiance. Hmm. If only in his own heart. And in some ways, I think that is the greater challenge. We want our heroes to be perfect. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. We want them to be exactly what we see them to be. And throughout this book, that just keeps getting knocked down again and again. And we as the reader have seen Ged as his, at his most vulnerable several times. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so it's easy for us not to worship Ged, but maybe she's saying something here about idolization and, you know, you don't know the full story of your idols. They've been weak just like you. They've been small just like you. They've struggled mm -hmm. just like you. They're just real people and you can have a bond with them. And I, I hope that we see by the end, I think we're starting to see that already. I hope we see by the end a more genuine bond between Aaron and Ged. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, we see Ged sharing his weakness with mm -hmm. Aaron later on, saying, I don't want to go among men again tomorrow. I've been pretending right. I am free, that nothing's wrong in the world, that I'm not Archmage, nor even sorcerer, that I'm Hawk of Tamara, without responsibilities or privilege, owing nothing to anyone. He stopped and after a while went on, tried to choose carefully, Aaron, when the great choices must be made. When I was young, I had to choose between the life of being and the life of doing. And I leapt at the ladder like a trout to a fly. But right. each deed you do, each act binds you to itself and its consequences and makes you act again and yet again. They very seldom do you come upon a space, a time like this, between act and act, when you may stop and simply be. Or wonder who, after all, you are. How could such a man, thought Aaron, be in doubt as to who and what he was? He had believed such doubts were reserved for the young, who had not done anything yet. The boat rocked in the great, cool darkness. That's why I like the sea, said Sparrowhawk in the darkness. And then one final short one, if I can. Yeah. In Enlad, said Aaron after a while. This is after a long silence between the two of them in an empty boat on the empty ocean. 
In Ed Lad, said Aaron after a while, we have a story about the boy whose schoolmaster was a stone. I, <laughs> what did he learn? Not to ask questions. Sparrowhawk snorted as if he was suppressing a laugh and sat up. Very well, he said, though I prefer to save talking till I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think, like I was saying before we got into the spoilers, I think that this version of Ged is very much showing you how you're still the same person as an older person. You know, you you grow with your flaws you can choose to confront them. You can choose to hide from them. Get at the end of the first book chooses to confront his flaws. And that mm -hmm. I think is what makes him a good arc mage is that he can help others also confront their flaws. Yeah. And here he is with Aaron saying, it's okay to be prideful. You, as long as you know that that's there and you know how to deal with that, you'll be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think we'll see another statement of this later at the climax when Ged explains how this full knowledge of himself and his flaws and his strengths is what leaves him free from the terror that is leading so many people, leading magic to be dissolved out of the world. I feel like you've, 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 uh, you've, I, I was like highlighting some of my uh, my thoughts uh, as you were. Right. There's there's so many things you've touched on here that I think are, are like. Wait, do I talk about this one first, or talk about that one first, or where do we go from here? Because um, this it's crazy that this five chapters in, and I think John, you said this earlier, the the uh, the ratio of highlighting to text was insane. <laughs> I felt like I was highlighting whole chapters here. I, I was like, wait a minute, I got to really control myself a little bit um and i thought yeah i'm, I'm trying to pick of what what first thing to, to to touch on i think the thing one thing that jumped out for me marilyn that in, that i had in my notes is that the world is in disarray mm -hmm. and when the world is in disarray then it gives the space it gives rise to um other less or, or well, I could say more nefarious uh, actors to to you know work their you know supposed magic or you know speak their spells or to you know uh, do their things, and I think it, it made me think about when this was written, what you had said about that time period when Ursula K. Le Guin was writing this, that the world really probably felt in huge disarray. Mm -hmm. Political assassinations, war, uh, you know, uh, presidents resigning. Uh, you know, we just covered the um, mm. uh, White House uh, plumbers, the White House mm -hmm. plumbers on HBO. Um, so, yeah, it, fe it feels like the world is, is in disarray. And, and when Ged and uh, Aaron go to Hortown, it feels like the world is in disarray. Yeah. The magic is gone. Slavers are in. There's no. And why is the world in disarray? Is at least in this world is because there is no leader, mm -hmm. right? They found the lost rune, <laughs> right, and the ring, but they're missing uh, that embodiment of that. And I think this is right where she gets really crafty because this the person who is going to step to that role is one of our main protagonists. 
Uh-huh. Right. The, this is not this. I don't want to get too far because I, I haven't read this in years, so I only have vague memories. Mm-hmm. But you know, uh, this story—it's <laughs> almost like another story of Ged finding the thing that's missing in the world. Right when he finds the um, finds the ring and uh, you know finds his shadow. Right, and then there's there's another quote later on. Um, the man who capped the Black Well of uh, Fundar and who won the ring from the tombs and who built the deep foundation seawall of Nep, the sailor who knew the seas from Astowel to uh, Selidor or whatever it is, the you know a dragon lord. So here's all this stuff that this guy has done, <laughs> and his most concurrent mystery to solve or thing to figure out is who's going to be who's the person who's going to embody the the this missing rune of leadership or the we have the rune but we've got nobody to embody it mm-hmm, and it's mm-hmm. right there in front of him mm. well and another perspective on that is okay we've got the rune of peace yeah why isn't there peace yes yeah that's yeah. what i was going to ask is i thought that we had a ring to solve this whole problem exactly. apparently they got to take that to the repair shop because it's not and, working out guys no 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 but this is her <laughs> point this is her point we can have the rune of peace and human beings are still human beings mm. and it's not enough to have the magical artifact you need the people who are willing to enact it in ways that will allow it to flourish. Can I read what Le Guin says in her afterward? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Going to do it anyway. A writer's life and work, a, a writer, excuse me, start again. A writer lives and works in the world she was born into. And no matter how firm her own purpose or how seemingly far from the present day, her subject, she and her work are subject to the changing winds and currents of that world. I was a child during the Great Depression and 11 years old when America entered the Second World War. I wrote this book soon after the 60s, a time of high tides and high winds, of great hope and wild feeling, when for a while it seemed a more generous vision might replace the sour dream of profiteering and consumerism that has been the bane of my country. As I look back at the book now, I see how it reflects that time along with the active movement to free America from racist injustice and from militarism. There was a real vision of getting free from compulsive materialism, the confusion of goods with good. Yet already we were watching much of that division blur off into wishful thinking or becoming drug dependent. Being an irreligious Puritan and a rational mystic, I think it's irresponsible to let a belief think for you or a chemical dream for you. Hmm. So is the look far sort of a, yes. uh, an insert for her writing career, the books in general, this it's guiding the, the, the winds are guiding where she takes the story. To some degree, I think so. And, of course, this afterward that I just read didn't come out until 2012. Hmm. Um, So sometimes you have to live a long way past before you can look back and say, okay. So that's what I meant there. That's that's why this came out the way it did at that time. Yeah. Yeah. 
Interesting. And that, that was, you know, so many people were going into communes, um, thinking that they had found the way to live peacefully. The back to the land movement in 1970 here in Maine, it was huge. Um, well, and um, uh, LSD, oh, we can unlock yes. consciousness. And once we exactly. unlock consciousness, we will solve all of our problems. Many yeah. people reaching out to Eastern religions mm-hmm. and spiritual practices, meditation. Yoga. Um, Yoga which is now TM. a billion dollar industry here in the United yep. States. So, yeah, yeah. So, so many aspirations, and yet again, the lesson of Ged: we we bring our flaws with us. What What's the line when he's talking to the? Is it the master patterner in the in the? Yes, I had that down too. Right, of course. <laughs> uh, what is evil? Asked the younger man. The round web with its black center seemed to watch them both. A web we men weave. Get answered. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I. And what's what is the counter to the the evil that men weave is. Other men, uh, men being, uh, I should say, are other humans, right? Humans. Others, yeah. No, we're getting Tolkien with it. We're doing men as the whole <laughs> as species. A race. Yeah, species. Yeah. Notice how powerful the tradition was. She was writing in. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's interesting. That that brings up the this stuff about um, Aaron and leadership and you know coming of age stuff. Um, his name, I. I didn't do too huge of a deep dive, but it, it, it was something that caught me was, uh, with Aaron. Um, he is, his name means sword in the common speech. Right. right? And then, so I started to think about, uh, swords and, and what does that mean? And, and whatever, what are our mythological stuff? And the, the idea that swords symbolize power, protection, authority, strength, courage um you know and then there's metaphysical meanings for it about uh the power of the intellect and the mind to be able to you know to uh separate ideas and to to work things um there's ideas of swords mixing all the elements you know air fire water earth uh to wield a sword takes training and knowledge and experience, right? So there's, you know, it, it, it requires something of the wielder. Um, and you've got lots of different swords in lots of different cultures uh, on our earth, you know, the Christian sword, Arthurian swords, Japanese swords, Hindu swords, Sikhs. I mean, within Sikh religion, one of the tenets is, is that you have a sword on your person at all times, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So there's a, there's whole ways that they've um, worked that around to be able to live in a modern uh, context. Um, so it's interesting that she, right away, again, she's throwing out clues all over the place about who Aaron is and what mm-hmm. this journey is going to be about mm-hmm. and about Aaron learning to wield himself yes yes it's very interesting i caught this after you talked about or mentioned it in your in your notes follow along how aaron uses and doesn't use his sword mm-hmm. yeah throughout the book it's really interesting as as an image as a, a signifier for his own journey mm. 
Yeah, there's a, a quote that I really liked. Uh, Yet it has killed. It has killed men. You know, I, I. Right. Yeah. So he has not killed, but the sword is killed. Right. Very, very interesting there. And I think Aaron really does not want to be pulled into the business of killing. And I, that kind of relieves me, don't you think? I mean, yeah. I'm glad to. I'm glad to know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's reassuring. Yeah. <laughs> a good quality for a ruler to have, I think. So, and then you know, with uh, with Aaron too, with what he's experienced so far, he's um, he's starting to experience the world not as a highborn but as an average person exactly and he's starting to see the problems that exist in the world mm -hmm. and he's you know he sat in the halls of power on roke and you know he's you know he's been to the you know the the shantytown parts of the biggest port the richest city in the archipelago of mm -hmm. you know this part of the world um He's been enslaved, yeah, right, and had to be free. Um, and yet, there's more adventure coming, right, to this even further reaches. Oh, yes. So all of this is shaping his knowledge and awareness of this world that is <laughs> before him. I don't want to like spoil it, spoil it, but like yeah, yeah. where we're going with this is it's going to be really useful for this kid to understand how this world works from mm -hmm. top to bottom. Mm -hmm. um, and so that he can use the sword of his intellect. He can use the sword of his might when it needs to be used. When he can use the sword as the symbol to rally people and to lift them up. Or right. as a tool for defense. Yeah. Mm. You can parry, you know, you don't have <laughs> you to. You can. Yeah, you don't have you to don't thrust. Have to, I know there's a button for it in all my video games, you know. <laughs> um, that's the only sword I like to wield. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, you, you don't need to use the sword to kill. The, right. the sword can be retired from killing Aaron. It's okay. Right. <laughs> mm -hmm. What's the next theme we have here? I think it's Marilyn's turn to introduce something. Well, two short ones, I think, that are actually connected because they deal with nature as it were the first one is the honoring the seasons and the cycles and so this is the moment when the two of them set off together in the look far sparrowhawk stood with one hand on the mast for the little boat leapt on the choppy waves and facing the sunrise of the equinox of spring he chanted Arryn did not know the old speech the tongue of wizards and dragons but he heard praise and rejoicing in the words and there was a great striding rhythm in them, like the rise and fall of tides, or the balance of the day and the night, each succeeding each forever. Gulls cried on the wind, and the shores of Thwill Bay slid past to right and left, and they entered on the long waves, full of light, of the inmost sea. So throughout this series so far, we've seen, or at least heard tell, of the long dance of summer. Mm-hmm. And the long night of winter, and we're told that all the peoples of all of the islands tell the stories and dance the dances of the seasons at those right. peak times. Here we now see a ritual acknowledging the balance day of spring. And of course, there's also a balance day in autumn. 
this is particularly potent to me that they are going out on the spring equinox because the equinoxes are about balance. And as we know by now, balance or equilibrium is the very heart and soul of magic of Earth Sea. Right. And something is disturbing the magic. Right. Interesting. Did not pick up something a- is interfering with the balance. Yeah. And that's the really fascinating part is they're using magic to interfere with magic. How is that working? I guess that's the mystery, but I mean, I don't know where what they're going for with this at this point. Well, I don't see how anything else could disturb the balance of magic, except other magic. Yeah, I yeah. guess. It's magic just, I, is a tool like anything else. You can use it for good or ill. And that's it, what we right. that's what they said when they're watching the spider. Right. It's just interesting how Aaron Aaron is convinced that you can't use magic for evil. I know. Right? I know. And gets like, that, yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> he has that dream of, of the hall at Roke being dusty and full of spider webs and abandoned and, and decrepit and so forth as they after they've left Hort Town and they haven't arrived at their next port. Well, right. even in um, Hort Town, uh, what's the name of the, the guy? Um, Hare. Hare. Uh, when Ged tells his story, he's like, oh, yeah, he was a pirate. You know, he was a mage for the pirates. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's like, oh, whoa, I thought all magic users were from the Isle of Roke and they have ethics and they've... You know, hey, don't gone, talk they, smack about pirates. My One Piece podcast is coming out soon. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking smack about them. I'm just saying they haven't gone, you know, yeah, their ethical yeah. training is uh, a little differently than, yeah, uh, yeah, than what yeah. the, the rope. Uh, but wait till you see what get. the Marines do in One Piece. Anyway, all right. Well, there is a quick little snippet here. True wizards are made only on Roke. Since there are sorcerers and witches on all the isles, and the uses of magic are as needful to their people as bread and delightful as music. So the school of wizardry is a place held in reverence. So they're kind of setting it up as, you know, this is the, this is the guardian, if right. you will, of practice of magic. And when people engage in mispractice, then some of the guardians have to come out and do something about it. So right. I don't necessarily picture get as being part of the guardians of the galaxy mind you but uh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah you know it's a strange thing to introduce this idea in book three that magic can't be used for evil because we've seen it be used for evil multiple times now throughout yes. the first two books right and so to introduce it here it really makes me as the reader who's been with ged for a while now see aaron as incredibly naive and naive mm. and privileged yeah you remember his yeah, father true. His father is a magic user. His right. father is also the prince and the leader of a very wealthy and prosperous and privileged island. Right. And so he really, as, as David was saying earlier, he really is seeing a fuller picture of Earthsea and its peoples now. And I think it's an excellent way of showing his naivete that he can't imagine that magic could be at the root of this because magic is all good. Well... Sorry, my dear. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go shatter of, some impressions. Yeah. This is this is part of what you need to learn. Um, yeah. Not only as as you know your maturity of understanding of the world, but of yourself and of your hero. It reminds me almost of Ged's presentation about death and life. Uh, I have a quote over here: mm-hmm. "Death and life are the same thing." 
like the two sides of my hand, the palm and the back, and still the palm and the back are not the same. They can be neither separated nor mixed. It's very, mm. it's very, you know, magic. Sure, it's balanced, but there's two sides to that, right? And and there's yes. there's two things that are balanced and uh, balancing, and they are the same thing, but they're not. And I I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, I had some quote of that too. And it's very important to remember that Polnish lore because it will come back again okay. in future books. Um, this is, she's envisioning it one way now. Um, it will get a chance to grow and change as well. Right. Do you want to go into Polnish lore anymore? I know you have it listed in your. Yeah. Um, well, I think you, I think you said that the core of it, um, but even Ged admits that the spells of summoning are part of the training of the the uh, the wizards on Roke, hmm. um, except that this current master summoner, he says, in this the master summoner agrees with me. He does not use or teach the lore of Palm, in which the spells are contained. The greatest of them were set were made by one called the Gray Mage of Palm a thousand years ago. He summoned up the spirits of the heroes and the mages, even Arath Akpe to give counsel to the lords of Palin in their wars and government. But the counsel of the dead is not profitable to the living. Palin came on evil times and the gray mage was driven forth and he died nameless. Now that was a real stunner right between the eyes for me. How can you possibly die nameless in this world where <laughs> names are so crucial, right? Um, but as Ged said, or, and of course, Aaron asks, is it a wicked thing then? You know, he's still in this very much black and white, right, you know, right. dualistic kind of frame of view. And again, gets, as I called a misunderstanding, he refused to, quote unquote, punish um, the slavers. You know, he, the, the closest thing he would come was to silence the, the leader until he had a good word to speak. But when Aaron questions that decision, Get says, I'm not going to let other people's evil determine my choices. Right. Who am I to judge that? Why, why should I, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not interested in punishment. You know, freeing of, a, of captives, sure. But right. beyond that, um, it's not up to me. And again, I think he's thinking of his own past in touch of evil and temptation. Yeah, right. for sure. Um, but sure. also, this is the humility that um, I think one or both of you have spoken about that we see in Ged, along with his sort of, again, fundamental sense of, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a goat herd. Right. Which conveys a great deal of practical knowledge when you come right down to it. Right, exactly. But um, you, you mentioned freeing the slaves. And what does he do when he frees the slaves except... Mm -hmm. free them without destroying their masters right he doesn't he doesn't make them do anything he just mm -hmm. gives them the option he gives them the opportunity to free themselves basically he returns their free choice to them it reminds me of this piece of jewish tradition which is cool. when you have a field and you are you are reaping the crops from the field you're supposed to leave a small portion of the crops there, but still on the plants so that someone who is poor and in need of food can get food for themselves, but they're able to get it for themselves. And it's not, mm. it's not handing them. It's the not food. a handout. 
it is it is them doing something for themselves and therefore feeling better about it and feeling good about it and feeling like they've done something with their day. I'm reminded of the book of Ruth, which is not surprising since that's my middle name. Um, but the gleaners following along and, and gleaning what was left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think it's the same thing here, right? He's he's giving them the tools to help themselves rather than forcing them into anything or or. I, you know, I don't, I don't want to use the word charity as a bad thing. You know what I mean? It's, sure. it's, uh, you know, in, in, in Hebrew, you have tzedakah, which is like, it's a little bit different than charity, right? It's, it's, it's giving, it's giving this opportunity, right? It's, it's, it's giving, but it's also giving opportunities for people to better themselves. And I think Ged does that with the slaves. And I think Ged does that with Aaron, who, is able to better himself by Ged giving him the opportunity of saying like, it's fine that you ran, right? You know, he gives him the opportunity to, to sort of explain himself and say, say, yeah, no, I was, I was doing the right thing. And, and uh, yeah, I, I think Ged is all about hand. He, he's all about teaching you to fish, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What I'm hearing in that too, is a sense of removing obstacles. Sure. Sure. As, as a, clearing the path, clearing the path, rather than the, the charitable acts that are, you know, giving them the fish instead of teaching them how to fish. Right. Then there's there's this quote here: um, having intelligence, we must not act in ignorance. Having choice, we must not act without responsibility. Mm-hmm. Who am I, though? I have the power to do it, to punish and reward. Playing with men's desires or uh, destinies. Sorry, desires. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, this, uh, really struck me too. this whole question of action versus inaction. Um, and very Taoist, very Taoist, but it also really reminded me of the, um, the Bhagavad Gita in the, which is part of the Mahabharata, which is mm-hmm. when Arjuna is instructing, uh, oh, I forget the, uh, the other guy's name now. It's been so long since I read that he's saying, you know, there's a point where you have, um, once you start taking certain actions, you're going to be bound by those actions, which we see in, in this as well. We, we hear Ged say yes. that. But that when you do act, you act free of passion. You don't act because you hate. He didn't punish the, the slavers. Oh, I hate slavery, you know, and I'm going to punish you, and I'm going to act out of malice and anger and retribution and whatever. I acted, I did what I did. I did what was necessary to the point then, and then I let go. But I didn't do it. And in, into the f- point, actually, this is an interesting point, because when he did go after Aaron, he went with passion, and that yeah. actually cost him some things and actually yes. caused him problems because he acted with passion, um, which is, this is a really kind of a weird uh, conversation because John and I just last night podcasted about The Phantom Menace and the Star Wars, oh. the first Star Wars movie. Yes. And when we talk, we were talking about the duel of the fates where Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon, and Darth mm-hmm. Maul are fighting. Mm-hmm. We see uh, Obi-Wan full of passion, and he does ultimately triumph over Darth Maul. But mm-hmm. what do we see Qui-Gon, you know, acting with calmness and stillness mm-hmm. in the face of danger? So this question of, of what motivates us to act, what motivates us to, you know, fix injustice or right injustice, and then... But then does that lead to then further injustice? 
Now, listener, the choice is yours. Do you believe George Lucas or Ursula K. Le Guin? <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is a theme she she comes up with again and again and again, that the, the root of magic is to do only what you must do. No more, right. no less. Right. And she brings it up in several different contexts and addresses it to several different people. But And one of the thing um, related to this, but also... The other, another point that I wanted to talk about, because I'm always talking about dragons, because her dragons are so different from anybody else's dragons that I know of. Um, and in the course of this conversation, in fact, I think it was probably the same conversation where Aaron is saying, why didn't you punish them or whatever. Um, Get says, only one thing in the world can resist an evil-hearted man, and that is another man. Right, exactly. In our shame is our glory. Only our spirit, which is capable of evil, is capable of overcoming it. So we've already touched on that already. But then Aaron says, but the dragons, said Aaron, do they not do great evil? Are they innocent? And Ged responds, the dragons. The dragons are avaricious, insatiable, treacherous, without pity, without remorse. But are they evil? Who am I to judge the acts of dragons? They are wiser than men are. It is with them as with dreams, Aaron. We men dream dreams. We work magic. We do good. We do evil. The dragons do not dream. They are dreams. Mm. They do not work magic. It is their substance, their being. They do not do. They are. The opposite of what people do. What I love about this is... Ged assigns a lot of descriptors to dragons, but he refuses to give a value judgment of evil or yes. good to dragons. Mm. Everything he said, avaricious. Sure, it has a negative connotation, <laughs> but it's not a value judgment. It's it's a qualification. It's a qualifier, right? It's right. a it's a it's a descriptor, right? It's it's a characteristic. It's not it's not a value judgment, and and he's not. He's not doing anything except stating what he sees. Mm -hmm. And that's a really great way to say they are because he's not doing anything. He is observing something in stasis. Mm -hmm. And he also says that if I forget every other aspect of my life and everything I've ever done, I will always remember <laughs> seeing the dragons flying. dancing in the air, flying yeah. on the wind over the reach of Celador. Yeah. And the yeah. glory and the beauty and the majesty of that. I have to offer a quick correction. I had uh, the Bhagavad Gita thing wrong. It, it was Krishna instructing Arjuna. So I just don't want any Bhagavad Gita uh, textualist coming at that, me. That so. was a whole three people, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I would. Yeah, it would have been those emails would have come in hot and fast. Uh, don't underestimate our audience. I know, That's right. I know. I know. There's a story to read, boy. The Mahabharata. Uh, yeah, a, there's a, a lot of thing. really fascinating stuff there. I, I yeah, I'm only. Very barely aware of them, but uh, every time I hear one, it's interesting. So, David, we haven't heard a theme from you in a while, and you keep typing new ones, so I need to get <laughs> you going on this. Uh, give me a new theme. Can we shift gears really quick uh, yes. and talk about some gender issues? Sure. <laughs> there was Why this, not? This on this line. crowd, are you kidding? Yeah, there was this line... Uh, 
that all the fortune witches read in smoke and water pools tell of ill and their love potions go amiss, but these are people without true wizardry. Um, fortune telling and love potions are not much of a count, but old women are worth listening to. Mm-hmm. I was like, what, what, you know, the, again, right here at the top, she's, she's laying out that, that, you know, oh yeah, it's old wives tales and they do love potions and their magic and whatnot. Um, and I, it was a real head scratcher because this is the third book in this series and, and whatnot. And so I didn't know how to, to fit in what I know about stuff from her with this attitude of a bunch of men sitting in this room who are all the masters of rogue, where true wizardry is validated and sanctified. And, and that's where you get your, you know, your, um, actual and, uh, symbolic, you know, powers from, um, Mm -hmm. and here they are just, you know, uh, 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 writing off a whole class of people and, and people who use magic, you know, for, for various purposes. You know what that reminds me of? No, I do not. It reminds me of a bunch of, oh, let's say 17th century doctors talking about the ludicrous nature of the village folk healer. Right. Yeah. They have very, very good. Yes. Because, oh, by the way, women are not allowed to attend the colleges of medicine. Right. By and large. But here there they are dealing day in and day out with broken bones, pregnancy issues, uh, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. infections, uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. Every single illness that can come. And frankly, everything. There was more um, there were more difficult births and and deaths in amongst the highborn who had physicians mm. tending to their births. And, and this goes well into the 1500s. Because of the methods the physicians were using, whereas the midwives of that same time period usually had more success. From practical experience. Practical experience, but also their methods mm. were quite mm-hmm. different and far less intrusive yeah. um, and invasive. And therefore, I'm generalizing wildly here, but therefore, you know, more wholesome, if you will. Well, you look at also the trend nowadays midwives are back in fashion people yeah, are exactly. looking for midwives and birthing centers rather mm-hmm. than just re- relying on obgyns all the time and you know no no shade to obgyns we had two great ones who really helped with the uh, with the birth of my two children but it's interesting mm-hmm. to see this sort of come back around and to yeah. see the midwife become this this pillar of a healthy childbirth again yeah it's really easy for the specialists to sneer at the you know non-specialists if they refuse to allow the non-specialists access to their learning. Right. And after a while to justify that by saying, well, clearly what they're doing is inferior anyway. So, you know, thus the whole trope is, is presented. And David, earlier you were talking about, you know, you're surprised that Le Guin is talking in this way in 1970. I think, I don't remember for sure. And I'm, I, I'm not going to look it up right now. I've got too many ones open as it is. I'm pretty sure that Ms. Magazine's first issue came out in 1970. Okay. So we're right on the cusp of a lot of things breaking forth. Right, right. And so it, she needed in those next 20 years to really have um, the realizations sink in for her. Right. Because what else did she have at that point? 
to rely upon. She was relying upon her tradition. Right. In which it was perfectly fine to say, you know, the right. male wizards who go to a school and are trained after a particular curriculum mm-hmm. are superior to the women who are practical on the ground doing these things from day to day um, and have learned bits and pieces here and there and have to cobble together whatever they know. Um, Because remember the thing I read earlier, um, magic is part of woven into the life of Earthsea. And it brings both the the mighty important things, but it's also as necessary as bread and music. Mm, Right, right. And there's just not enough mages around to give you your bread and music in every single tiny island all over the archipelago. So, but and then to those these Im- things that are embedded in our conscious, into our value sets, into our language that we don't even know that are embedded that we've in- inherited them. And I've That's talked right. about this. Um, oh gosh, it's a blur. But a- another podcast talking about uh, uh, when we became parents suddenly we became aware of how things have been uh-huh. gender labeled, right? Yes. It's Mr. Toothbrush. It's, you know, right. Mr. Right. You know, Mr. Right. Carr. Like what? Why, why is everything, you know, or on all the stories, one of the stories that uh, our daughter uh, enjoyed us reading was about a, a good night, good night construction site. And all the trucks <laughs> are, are male gendered. So we just started flipping the gender just to break there our you own, go. you know, our own mentality around it. Um, but you don't realize all of that stuff that has been downloaded and installed in your operating system that's right. running mm-hmm. in the background until there's something that comes up to confront you to, to look at it. Um, the, the power of the spell is demonstrated by the fact that you don't even think about it. Yeah, exactly. But then we learned then, its true name, which is patriarchy. <laughs> and then exactly. uh, it's, it's okay. We, we have solved patriarchy at this point. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I will refrain from commenting on yeah, the, yeah, yeah, who yeah. and what it was that just made that comment. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy. Oh, boy. So I think that's a great touching base on gender issues of course i think yeah. we'll talk about them at length in tehanu so we'll save a lot of that for we then. will yeah I, I can't wait the other one that i had was about the youth and the coming of age stuff yeah and i and i touched on this at the at the top being where i am now in my life standing and looking back i really do feel i'm in this uh um this uh, uh fulcrum point where I still feel young and spry enough that I can go do stuff, work on my house, you know, play with my my child, all of these kinds of things. And but yet I still and I can still dream of the things that I've done and and not yet done, but I'm also carried by their and I think these two things, the bound by choices and the coming of age stuff are are linked in in a way, but I'm also mm-hmm. bound by the choices that I I have made now. And so I was thinking a lot about youth and coming of age. And when I read all three of these books, but certainly this one, this uh, electricity, and then reading it again now, the electricity that I could feel of my brain sparking up of about uh, of, of adventure and discovery and, and certainly what Ged feels constrained by, like, I want to get back out on the open <laughs> ocean and go smell the salt air and, and sleep under the stars. But then when we have Aaron, who's, you know, our youthful companion 
what does he want to do? What do, what do youth want to do? We want to discover. We want to explore. We want to find purpose, right? Um, we want to mark the world and have the world mark us. And it's a really great setup to have Aaron and Ged because Ged isn't this old guy who just wants to sit around and, you know, a little bit like Ogion, right? You know, just wander and look at my flowers and, you know, smell there. Ged wants to be out there sailing and seeing dragons fly. He still has mm-hmm, the the, mm-hmm. the vibe in him. So, yeah, I'm just thinking about the whole nature of coming of age and youth. It's not just about, oh, you know, coming of age and the hero's journey, but then what is it that is the animating spirit? Mm-hmm. And it, to me, I just keep coming back to this idea that I want to mark the world and I want the world to mark me so that I, hmm. that I'm trying to find the word here, uh, that, that I know that I was alive. Mm-hmm. Right. How do I know that I'm here? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. How do I know that I did something? Is that I can look out in the world and see, oh, I built that thing or I, you know, I had a family or, you know, I painted my house or whatever. But at the same mm-hmm. time, can I reflect then back on my experiences and feel the, the, those choices that I've made mm-hmm. within me, you know? And I, I think for Aaron, the particular challenge is that he comes of a, a storied and fabled lineage. Which is, yeah. And a responsibility. how does he make his own work as himself, Aaron? Mm. And not simply as the most recent descendant of the genetic, uh, yeah, yeah, Morin, the greatest king, you know, that they've had, and that they're still, in a sense, the once and future king crops up here because everybody's saying, you know, the prophecy that we will hear later. I think I don't think we've heard it yet. Um, talking about the line of Morid. Um, and what it must accomplish in order to the king, what the king has to do in order to return to the throne. Mm. I don't think that's really too much of a horrible spoiler for people who haven't read past <laughs> chapter five. <laughs> the setup is is fairly clear here. Um, but Arden talks about it himself that in you know in, in the that very earlier part that I read, he said, "Yeah, this is who I am," um, and I am not Morid. I am only myself. Mm-hmm. I take pride in my lineage because it makes me a prince. It's a responsibility, a thing that must be lived up to. But it's not necessarily a thing that helps you discover who you are without your destiny, without your ancestry, without all this other stuff. If we bring it back to Popeye, I am what I am. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the Tao of Popeye. Yeah. But that, that's, Popeye. Only, that's only achieved, I think, after a lot of experience of finding out what you are in. Right. And we see that happening to Aaron a couple of times. So then this this question of identity and the it it it, it gets really um <clears throat> I don't want to say messy is not the right word, but it's it gets very rhizomatic. Everything's sort of connected to everything here. <laughs> Who am I if I'm not the 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 series of choices that I've made? But mm-hmm. am I just the series of choices? What is my identity? Um, and, and here we have Ged who's still carrying the, you know, his gauntish, uh, goat herding days, but he's also a very arrogant person, but he's also a very humble person. He's all these things. Um, 
And now he's bound by his choices. He's the archmage, right? He's got responsibilities. You can't just, you know, go cruising around on your boat. Um, but then who Except is that's he? that's exactly what he's doing. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and all the other masters of Rogue know it. <laughs> and they're like, right. you, don't, we, you, don't, right. you don't fool us, you know, friend. Yeah. Um, but yeah, then that this whole thing of being bound by your choices. And if you act and then you're bound again. Yeah, you, I I am really cognizant of that in my life right now. Um, mm. uh, They're and, like, Ged, uh, you have health insurance now. You can't just go <laughs> <Yeah>. off. <laughs> You've got a pension, man. You can't just go sail the sea. You got to keep clocking those those hours for Social Security so that, yeah, you get your check. <laughs> well, and also overall, arching most of that for, for most many of the mages is the sense of this is the important place in the world. Mm-hmm. At a time of crisis, why would you want to go gallivanting off who knows right. where? You don't even know where you're going. But the, Is that's that a responsible the, way to behave? <laughs> and, and that's the thing about uh, that's so interesting is, is their, their myopic, the, the myopia yeah. or whatever, that the, they can't see beyond. Mm-hmm. And then when Ged and uh, uh, Aaron are out on the boat and Ged, not unmuch, not unmuch, not much unlike myself these days, is like, what was that dude's name? I, I can't quite remember. Um, I don't think yeah. there's a magic that's sucking the world, you know, out of my memory. I think I'm just, you know, getting the, the old brain syndrome. Um, but, you know, that's where the answers are, are, is out there, not in here. Right. So Right. You may feel like you're the center of the world, but this is about something that has left the center. And that's why we're out of balance. And, and it's, it's coming sitting for here. You. It's coming for you. It's coming for you. We may be the last bastion. Yeah. Um, but sitting here and waiting until we're actually the last bastion is probably not a good idea. Not a great idea. And he's very wise in terms of, you know, working with his occasionally ruxious team, as it were. He recognizes that the summoner feels it's important to stay. And so he tells him to stay. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, you be the watchman here. Yeah, right. Because that's what you're good at. That's what you do. I'm the one who roams. And so I'm going to go out roaming. So we've covered both action and inaction, if you want to call it that. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. And then that's that's a kind of balance, right? Exactly. He's called, the summoner's calling is there and, and mm-hmm. listening. and, and mm-hmm. pay, I'm the active part of this energy. Mm-hmm. Of it this reminds pattern. me of how Galadriel wanted Gandalf to lead the White Council. Mm. But he needed to wander. And so he didn't right. want to be in charge. Right, right. He never wanted to have any fixed realm or residence. But it was actually this wandering and this being aware of all the peoples of Middle-earth, being aware yeah. of the problems that are around, that gave him the advantage to mm-hmm. help take down evil. You know, nothing... That, that battle's not won without Gandalf. And I think with Ged, he's saying somebody needs to be on the ground, and I seem to be the only one with the interest to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he's also showing this to Aaron. Saying, yeah. If you want yeah. to be a responsible leader, you have to know everything about all the people that mm. you're meeting. Go see. Well, I think Ged stole that from Undercover Boss, but let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe he got a little bit of it from Ogian too. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly from his own childhood. So, John, I'm curious as as not having read uh, any of the books before, do you have some theories based on the first five? Because all the answers are in the first five chapters here. Do you have a yeah, theory basically. of the case? 
Um, I actually got spoiled of who is the big bad because okay. I was on Wikipedia. Oh, no. At some oh, details. No. I didn't read the whole plot, but I know sure, sure. a little bit about what happened. So I don't want to speculate because I can't fairly do that now. Okay. But I'm excited to see how we get there because I think it's going to be a fun ride from here. Mm-hmm. I it think it's dramatic. It we, is dramatic. We've been talking a bunch too in the in our MC Universe podcast about hero origin stories and villain origin stories. Oh. The uh, Spider Man Across the Spider Verse just came out, which is an exceptional film. Uh, it, it's not a it's not a, your average superhero thing. It is a it's a work of art in in its own right. Um, but there's this whole question of who begat whom right how did a villain get started and and how did a hero get started and and how do those hmm. two things interplay and so i love the fact that again Le Guin is here tapped into a deep root of something that was already existing that you know is now is is a common thing in our in our modern mythological storytelling what is the source of evil the webs we weave, right? The men. And it's the main question, I think, that human beings have asked throughout our existence as human beings. Mm-hmm. Why do bad things happen? Right. And it's a, there's a strong motivator here in terms of this question of life and death. And, and uh, right. when we're dealing with certain uh, religious um, values, you know, life everlasting, uh, you know, what happens to me after I die? You know, where right. does my spirit go? All of this kind of stuff. It's a powerful, powerful. I mean, the pyramids, as far as we know, were <laughs> temples to, you know, right. to the persistence of, of a, an ego. Uh, yeah. And, and the fact that even the bravest person might have some uncertainty is enough of a, of a, breach in the wall if you will or or a a gap in the armor Mm -hmm. i don't know what kind of metaphor you want to use for somebody who recognizes the power of that fear and can work on it Mm -hmm. i mean now we're talking for voldemort right um I've never the read any of the Harry Potter. Oh, okay. so. I mean, I read well, the first listeners book. Listeners who have. I read the Harry Potter. Know John is a master. I was yes. born in the 1990s and everybody <laughs> read the Harry Potter series. There you go. Then. That was the generation, wasn't it? So the ability to turn that fear to your own purposes is a universal, I think, mm-hmm. and comes up in many different forms in many different ways. Um, and yet, the suggestion is that it didn't necessarily come from a desire for power over or domination. Um, but I'm now getting too far into the second half of the books. So <laughs> well, that's a good place there. to leave it then. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Very Gosh, cool. I oh, think, it's only uh, an hour and a half. Uh, good thing we broke this up because we would have been here for <laughs> a three-hour yeah. podcast. <laughs> Yes, I'm I'm sure that we would have and we probably <laughs> Easily. will next time. Easily. All right, let's take a quick break. When we get back, we'll get to listener feedback. And we're back. It's time for listener feedback. 
Uh, we've got a couple Discord messages, and we've got a contact form entry. So let's start off with the Discord messages. Of course, you can also send us an email at book at the lorehounds.com if you prefer the traditional form of feedback. I, uh, do you remember when they when they called uh, snail mail, snail mail, and electronic email? And, <laughs> I, 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 w- I remember when NPR Those was first the days by Cracky. Yeah. I also like that. Remember AOL Instant Messenger, how that became? Oh, yeah. That was a huge thing back in the day. I spent like every day after middle school on that thing. It disappeared. We didn't do Instant Messenger forever because of texting. Now Discord's here, and it's basically just yeah AOL on steroids. Well, which was IIRC uh, before that. So, you know, uh, real-time chat has been around for as a... We love it. Yeah. BBS. Uh, Discord server in the show notes. Anyway, uh, Brian8063 says, uh, and by the way, who is a lore master, and did a lovely, uh, a lovely job of giving us context in White House Plumbers. So thanks again, Brian. Uh, he writes, we are off to a good start with the first chapter called The Rowan Tree. We were inspired by the name to call our son by that name. It means protection. Ah, now see that. First of all, mm-hmm. congratulations on your son, Brian. But also, that's interesting to me now. With Aaron, what's uh, what's going on there with protection? Mm-hmm. The other interesting thing is the Rowan tree is often associated with witchcraft. Okay, and people would, depending on who you read, people would plant a Rowan tree to protect their home. From evil spells. Oh. But witches would also be drawn to rowan trees, um, not for for nefarious or evil purposes. Yeah. But because they are associated with power and healing, particularly healing of the heart. Interesting. Wow. Mm-hmm. I like that. Marilyn, I think that we're going to have to do the witches series from Disc- Discworld eventually. Oh! Because we've got to talk about that magic system, too. I feel like there's going to be a lot of intersection here. Could be, could be. They're, I mean, when they draw from the same sources, yeah, almost invariably they're going to uh, have right similar answers, aren't they? Yeah. So Elisa on the Discord, uh, also a patron, says, "I can't believe this is considered YA. The farthest shore was very <laughs> introspective, and I feel is targeted towards those with more life experience. It's an, it's incredible, nonetheless. Can't wait to hear your takes, and looking forward to Tahanu." Hmm. I agree. I think this did not feel like a YA book at all to me. No, no. And and I'm not, Absolutely. I don't want to be derogatory towards YA. It's an important genre. It gets a lot of people into these worlds and it often can say a lot of deep things. I mean, I think of His Dark Materials being mm-hmm. a YA trilogy that really says a lot to my adult self. I read it l- last year. And, but this is, this is so mature for a book that's labeled YA, right? And that's almost a testament to its quality. I mean, I think that Tolkien would have said, you know, The Hobbit's a children's book, but we can learn something from it, even as adults. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think in terms of YA, it comes with a category, as of course we've all been saying, of coming-of-age story. Yeah. And there were plenty of YA stories that I didn't want to read as a YA because again, they were dealing with really heavy stuff, and I was dealing with heavy stuff in my own life. Thank you very much. And I wanted stories that offered hope and and lightness and escape. I mean, the Tolkien's famous escape recovery consolation. I wanted stories that reassured me that it would be all right, quote unquote. 
And, you know, most of these do get there eventually, but some of them go to some pretty dark and deep places before, uh, before, you know, returning to that safer place. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There's a wide variety in YA and uh, genre has grown quite a bit since Le Guin wrote this. So. Oh, it's a huge, yeah. yeah, yeah. Huge industry it's, it's in and of now. itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful for the stories that tell really gnarly and raw um, experiences because YA category age people are having gnarly experiences and deep challenges. And for many, it's very reassuring to read a story and say, yeah, been there, done that. Okay. And it's not just me. You know, there's, there is definitely healing in that kind of experience as well. You know, it kind of uh, blows me away a little bit. Um, our daughter has been telling us about a series of books that they've been reading in her class. And I think they're books that are geared towards uh, teaching reading and uh, mm. and spelling and all that kind of stuff. And, and I think they're out of the UK. It's uh, something about a talisman series. And she'll regale us with these long explanations about mm. what the characters were doing and what, not, what they were not doing. And it's a you know, I grew up, uh, you know, like started playing Dungeons and Dragons uh, in the I think 81 probably is when we got I, I actually got into it a little bit. So I certainly remember the satanic panic and all the stuff about, you know, rock oh, music, yeah. da, you know, uh, uh, Ozzy Osbourne and all of these things. And uh, all right. Well, the guy was eating bats. Let's be honest. That yeah, was a little fair enough. Um, <laughs> but here here it is now. Uh, in our daughter's second grade class, they're reading about the dark wizard and this ta and these magic talismans and um, how these characters are having to go through these trials and tribulations and encountering. One of the books she likes to read is the Young Adventurer's Guide to Dragons, which was given <laughs> to us kind of as a hand-me-down side book, and I and she loves reading, you know, going through this, and she'll ask me randomly out of the blue, so. What amethyst dragons? What are their powers again? And <laughs> you know, we have certainly moved Better start on. Better taking notes, David. <laughs> well, yeah, as a, as an active, uh, well, my gaming group is a little bit on hiatus, but uh, as an active, mm -hmm. you know, uh, role player, I'm I'm like, oh, okay, this is cool. I can I so can be part this. of your group eventually. Yeah, exactly. She could play. Well, when I'll be in the nursing home, and she'll be like, Dad, do you want to roll up a new character? <laughs> I can't wait for Gen X nursing homes and we're going to be playing Xboxes and lordy, and, lordy, lordy, and uh, playing role playing games and the mind uh, boggles. My great nephew Eli introduced me to the Dragonette series, which I was thinking of when you were talking about this because it, it is dragon young dragons are the central characters of it. Mm -hmm. and it is extremely well written. I highly recommend it. And of course, can I remember the author's name right now? No, I cannot. But if you Google Dragonette, I'm sure it'll pop right up to the top. Um, I would say it's for an older crowd, like, you know, 10 to 12, 10 to 14, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, but excellently well-written, variable point of view characters each time. Lots and lots of stories about the importance of... Um, Wings of uh, Fire novel series. There you go. The That's Dragonette it. Prophecy. That's it. The importance of difference, of having... Twee T. Sutherland. Twee. Yeah. Twee Sutherland, yeah. So I highly Very recommend nice. those. But it's also true that um, a lot of people who theorize about fairy tales say that one of their important functions for children is to introduce them to the challenges of life in circumstances in which they can 
handle it, as it were, and they can learn that challenges can be overcome. Doesn't this go back to our conversation earlier that John was talking about with speculative fiction? Like, you yeah, know, we can, we can discover these truths, but they also give us ways, because if it's too rooted in reality, we just see the reality. Right. And it takes the fantastical for us to be able to have that mm -hmm. a different perspective on right. the Right, it breaks down truths. your defenses a little bit. Yeah. But sometimes the author's solution is not one that is accessible to you. Mm-hmm. And that can be really frustrating. And actually, I'll jump ahead a little and say that's kind of how I felt with Tahanu, but uh -huh, we'll okay. get into that when we get there. <laughs> All right. Uh, next piece of feedback, Amos W. sent an email via the contact form. Uh, David, John, and Marilyn, first, I wanted to thank you for introducing me to the wonderful world of Earthsea. I had no idea the series existed before your podcast, but now I'm hooked. <laughs> Cannot wait to read the rest of the series along with y'all. I really enjoyed your insights on this and on the Silmarillion. Thank you. Isn't that great, everyone? We we got Yay. somebody reading it. <laughs> Yay. It just breaks my heart how few people know Earthsea these days. So hopefully we're, we're doing our bit. Yeah. We're doing our bit to recover her. Right. I check the subreddits to see if anybody's, you know, talking about the series. And man, there's a tiny Earthsea subreddit. And there's some mention of it on r slash fantasy. Not a ton, though. It's really yeah. it's really definitely a lesser known series. So, and that's yeah. I had never heard of it until you mentioned it on a podcast, Marilyn. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, I'm glad that we're reading it now. Uh, so Amos mm -hmm. continues. I had a question for Marilyn. I've really loved hearing how Le Guin's Taoism influenced these books, and I've been intrigued by the concepts she's exploring. Do you have any recommendations for books on Taoism, specifically a book that would serve as an introduction to that philosophy? Well, thank you, Amos. The instant I heard about this question, I ran to my bookshelves frantically and started reading through to find all the books that I might have. Um, the first thing I'll say is I think the best thing to do is to just find a translation of uh, Lao Tzu's Tao Te Ching um, Hopefully we can put that in the show notes because it's not spelled the way it sounds to English speaking ears. But to read the actual text itself, uh, for instance, the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The unnameable is the eternally real. Naming is the origin of all particular things. Free from desire, you realize the mystery. Caught in desire, you see only the manifestation. Yet, Mystery and manifestation arise from the same source. This source is called darkness. Darkness within darkness, the gateway to all understanding. Now, I realize that's probably as clear as mud at this point. <laughs> I was just thinking, is it just too late for me to understand that? <laughs> <laughs> no, because um, it's, it's the opening point. The thing is, these are very short poems. You can read through them, and you will come upon one that will go zing. And then that's the one you focus on. Le Guin herself actually did a translation of it. Mm -hmm. And so she says, the way you can go isn't the real way. The name you can say isn't the real name. Heaven and earth begin in the unnamed. Name is the mother of the 10,000 things. So the unwanting soul sees what's hidden. And the ever-wanting soul sees only what it wants. Two things, one origin, but different in name, whose identity is mystery. Mystery of all mysteries, 
the door to the hidden. And then her commentary is, a satisfactory translation of this chapter is, I believe, perfectly impossible. <laughs> it contains the book. I think of it as the Aleph in Borges' story. If you see it rightly, it contains everything. Wow. So, for those of you who want to explore further, I can highly recommend Benjamin Hoff's The Tao of Pooh, which takes a slightly different attitude. What's this you're writing? asked Pooh, climbing onto the writing table. The Tao of Pooh, I replied. The How of Pooh? asked Pooh, smudging one of the words I had just written. The Tao of Pooh, I replied, poking his paw away with my pencil. It seems more like the Ow of Pooh, said Pooh, rubbing his paw. Well, it's not, I replied huffily. What's it about? asked Pooh, leaning forward and smearing another word. It's about how to stay happy and calm under all circumstances, I yelled. <laughs> Have you read it? asked Pooh. <laughs> <laughs> See, Pooh knows what he's talking about. Yeah, he does. And it really is a very gentle and loving, particularly if you're familiar with the books of Winnie the Pooh, different from the movies. But um, he explains the basic concepts and uh, it's just, it's delightful. It's absolutely delightful. So Amos, if you want to read something about it, I would suggest the Tao of Pooh. But I would also suggest that you find a translation that speaks to you. Um, I have three on my shelves, those two plus uh, one that came out a long time ago by Jane English with beautiful, beautiful illustrations. I've got a couple of books uh, myself. I read a lot of Taoism when I was a, a younger man, uh, Good. searching for you know things that resonated with me, and I didn't get a chance to grab them um, uh, before we started recording. But uh, I may grab a title or something, and, and John can put it in the show notes. Uh, Excellent, or we can bring it up the, on our next podcast. Very cool. Uh, Amos finishes with a fun piece of feedback. He says, a while back, I think in your first episode on Earthsea, you quoted the Monty Python line, your father smelt of elderberries. And you asked if elderberries had a particular smell, having harvested wild elderberries and turned them into jam. I can tell you, yes, they have a distinctive smell and it is not pleasant. It's like <laughs> the smell of someone sweating, though a little sweeter and metallic. Wow. Uh, the only way to make them palatable, in my opinion, is to dilute them with so much sugar in a jam that you can no longer taste them. <laughs> anyway, thanks again. And looking forward to many more podcasts from you guys. All the best, Amos. Wow. What a what a vivid description of elderberries. I love Amos, it. Amos, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. Yes, that's thank that, you. That really that adds to great my joy. Monty Python experience. <laughs> Loremaster Doof 71 on Discord. Well, I just finished The Farthest Shore. It was a very satisfying read, and just like Tombs left me wanting to spend more time with the protagonist. David, you've redacted the spoilery part of Doof's comment, and I guess we'll return to that on the next podcast. So I'll skip yeah, to the well, last paragraph. Yeah. Uh, with each book, I am being pulled further into the world of Earthsea and what Le Guin wants to show me. These books demonstrate that you don't need a thousand page doorstop to weave an epic story that has real meaning behind it. The Earthsea books are like a highly nourishing banquet where each course is distinct and unique, but you don't overindulge. You are left sated, but with a desire to see what wonders uh, in the next course. Uh, I, for one, am happy to be on the journey and can't wait to take the next on next step on the road with Tehanu. 
know, there you go. Terrific. Feedback, yeah. I think that's a good way to end it, you know? Yeah, it's pretty pretty definitive. (laughs) You can't argue with that statement. Well, thanks, Duve. Duve, I said, was a lore master. And boy, do we have lore masters. We've got 25 of them now. Crazy talk here. And uh, these are our top Patreon supporters. They're our top tier. Uh, We're currently on a Patreon drive. And uh, we're trying to reach 100 subscribers by the end of July so that we can, you know, grow a little bit as a network and support more creators and uh, keep providing more services for y'all. Um, but first, we want to thank our lore masters who get a shout out every single episode. That's Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H, Michael G, Michelle E, David W, Brian P, Nick W, SC, Peter OH, Bettina W, Adam S, Nancy M, Lavinia T, Do 71, Brian8063, Frederick H, Sarah L, Gareth C, Eric F, Matthew M, Sarah M, DJ Miwa, Joyce E, and Andra B. Woo, that list is getting long. And that list, in addition to the rest of our patrons, who are also very grateful for, uh, will be getting a sticker if they're subscribed by the end of the month of July that Marilyn, who you've heard a lot from tonight, uh, helped us design she hooked us up with some uh wh- what is it tangwar tangwar scholars who yes. could help us with uh the cinderon cinderon translations of uh what we wanted to say on the sticker so this is a once in a lifetime sticker we're not going to produce them again we're not going to put them on a website to buy this is just for the people who are subscribed to us by the end of july for our one-year anniversary david yes sir it's time for some programming notes Would you like to discuss some of that? Sure. Uh, I think first up, we should make sure we shout out our new podcast uh, affiliate, Alicia, Mm -hmm. who um, listeners may have known from uh, various shows, but she's now currently one of our co-hosts on the MCU stuff. Um, She uh, sent in lots of good uh, tidbits for us to consider when we were covering Mandalorian. She's got her own podcast now, and we're we're the happy publishers of it. It's called Wool Shift Dust. And it's covering the Silo TV show on Apple TV, which is a great sci-fi dystopian mystery box kind of thing. So definitely go check out her podcast. Um, it's her and her co-host Luke have been doing the the heavy lifting of uh, breaking down the episodes. Uh, Alicia's a big fan of the books, so she's uh, bringing in some of the book lore, and uh, it's it's really fun to watch a show and not have to cover it, do any work. So I'm enjoying uh, listening to their coverage every week. David, um, do you have the discord up? Because the silo channel on our discord is as the kids say popping off. Is it popping right now? Uh, I have one message from someone with about 20 exclamation points in a row. Okay. <laughs> I guess oh, did the, the episode, episode just drop while we and were it's recording? Very good. Okay. Very yeah, cool. So hop in that That's channel, exciting. hop on that podcast. If you want more of that. Now, John, you and Marilyn were just doing a one-shot on Mrs. Davis, and that is Mm -hmm. out in your feeds now. You can go back and listen to that. Sounds like you guys had a lot of fun. Yes, and and, and the praise from uh, one of our Discord users, Eon, Uh, uh, left me speechless, said, just finished listening to the pod. Great discussion. One of the best pods you've done. So wow. We don't need you, David. It's just no, me in Maryland now. All right. No, no, Peace no. out. <laughs> <laughs> no, we need you. But, uh, it, you know, I, I think we had a great conversation, Maryland. That's and right. I'm just we using did. I'm using this comment to promote this. 
So thanks. Well, and I think <laughs> it's exciting that we kind of hit this model idea of these one shots. So if stuff comes up that's a binge mode show or a show that we didn't, you, it's not a big tentpole show, but somebody wants to cover it and we've got a co-host and a contributor or, you know, somebody that we're in, within our community, we can, we can do these kinds of uh, things. So I'm really glad that you guys were able to, to get one off. I started to listen to the other day. I was doing some house chores and then I realized I had to stop. Because I, I didn't even finish episode one yet, and that's not because I don't want to watch it. But now that oh, now that yeah. you, there's the podcast for me to listen to, I now have to go. I'm obligated to go finish <laughs> the series. So, well, I'd love to hear your reactions. Yes, uh, Silmarillion stories. We just had a recording with uh, Mr. Anthony. What's the schedule? Will this have been out before that, or is- uh, this is probably going to be out after that? After okay, so yes. go back. We just had a conversation with Maester Anthony about Fanor and the unchaining of Melkor, uh, which was a great conversation to have. And and uh, it's great to talk to Anthony because he loves the Silmarillion. It's a, it's a work that's very dear to his heart. And uh, so we got a lot of fun insights and had a good conversation there. Yeah, uh, we also ch- said that uh, we, we already preempted your email, Marilyn. We said we're about to get an email oh, yeah. from Marilyn about the role of Nienna <laughs> in Melkor's redemption. Uh, ah, so, uh, yes, indeed. yeah, so, so we discussed that and we, we need your input. So we'll expect that email uh, yes. right away. <laughs> as soon as I hear the episode. That's right. Uh, two other things to make a quick mention. Uh, John and I foolishly decided that we would cover every, uh, of the, all of the major star Wars <laughs> films. Uh, I'm having a all- great time. 11 of them, I believe it is. Um, and we're going to do it in in universal, in order of the universe, not in the or, uh, release order. Chronological, of the films. yeah. Chronological. Yeah. Wonderful, wonderful. So we just recorded uh, Phantom Menace, and that should be out uh, shortly. Um, it, was, uh, it was hard to be even keeled in that podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Don't want to be hated. We're not haters here. We are, we are lovers. We, I had a good time. We did have a good time. Just so everyone knows. We uh we may be a little bit of angel and devil on your shoulders at certain points, but it's okay. Yeah. Because you you have both sides of the coin there. And we're doing this for the love of the universe and the love of the IP, right? So right. it's it was a it, it's a good film to there's a lot that gets laid down in that film regardless of the structural mm-hmm. problems, the plot and acting issues and stuff like that. There's so much lore and world building in that first movie. It's it's pretty wild. Um, and the last thing that we'll mention is um, the MC Universe crew, Alicia, Jean, and I are coming together to cover Secret Invasion. We've been talking in our um, private channel for planning all these kinds of things. And uh, Alicia's got some ideas for how we might want to cover this. And so we're going to do week to week coverage. Um, wow. Starting, uh, I believe the first episode is June 21st. And so we'll be uh, plugging along, I think it's six episodes, and uh, it looks like, or six or eight, I can't remember off the top of my head, um, but it looks to be a very cool uh, spy-style thriller in the MC universe. So look for those shows in your feeds. Uh, and then we'll have more updates uh, coming in July, about July. The Lorehounds Podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. 
A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. <laughs>